Hi, this is Pastor Austin from Connection Church. Thank you for tuning into our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our services, you can go to ConnectionNYC.com or check us out at ConnectionNYC on Instagram. Hope you enjoy it and hope to see you soon. Good morning. Uh, Welcome to Connection Church. We are so excited uh, to see you here this morning. Uh, We are going through a sermon series right now all about prayer. So last week we talked about adoration. This week we'll be talking about confession, and it's all a part of this uh, prayer structure that's known as ACTS, which is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And so we'll have one sermon on each of these. Uh, This week we'll be in a couple of different areas of scripture. Um, If you go to connection.family, you can click on Sunday service, and all the lyrics, and you scroll past that, the uh, scripture will be there. If you want to follow along uh, in your own uh, Bible or on your own app, feel free to do that. Uh, We will be in 2 Samuel, chapter 12, to start off. And yeah, so today we're talking about uh, confession. Uh, This week we're going to learn a little bit about confession and exactly what that means. And if you've been here in the past, you know that I really, really enjoy like different strange things. But one of those things that I really enjoy is just defining words. I think if we're going to talk about things... We should have a definition and kind of a base structure to start off with. So confession, a definition for confession that I think is the most applicable to what we will be learning today is a formal statement admitting that one is guilty of a crime. And in our context, guilty of a sin, right? A formal statement admitting that one is guilty of a sin. I really like this definition because of the word formal, because really when we go to confess our sins to God... Uh, In some sense, it's kind of like a formality, right? We're we're giving this information to God and saying, God, I did something I shouldn't have. And the the aspect of that that is a formality is that God already knows that, right? We're not giving him new information. In fact, he already had that information before we even had it. The part of that that is not a formality is the transformation that happens in our lives and in our hearts because we confess, so today we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit. We're going to be in uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to look at an interaction between a man named Nathan and a man named David. Now this interaction actually happens after David commits a sin. And David was known as uh, a man after God's own heart. David did a lot of phenomenal things in the name of the Lord. Uh, but one thing that he did that was a, a pretty big mistake is he one day looked out over a rooftop and he saw a woman by the name of Bathsheba. Maybe you guys know this story. And he decided, I want to be with that woman. Not only was this woman not his wife, she was actually the wife of someone else. And so David, being the king, decided that he would take care of that someone else by sending him out into battle and by telling the general, send him to the very front line. He didn't want to leave anything to chance. He said, make sure that Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, is the first into battle on the very front line. And of course, Uriah died, and David was able to claim Bathsheba as his wife. And this is obviously something that's not very good. You don't have to be a man after God's own heart to know that that probably wasn't the best decision to make. But David, in his own way, rationalizes what he did and and continues living his life. And maybe on some level, David understood that he had sinned, but he hadn't had a, a full recognition of his sin up to this point. And so Nathan is sent by the Lord to David uh, and this interaction ensues. In chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, it says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich 
and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up. And it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. In verse 5, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And in verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite, or the Hittite with the sword, and has, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. I thought it was really interesting the analogy that Nathan chooses to use because a lot of us know that David, David actually grew up as a shepherd, right? He wasn't born into royalty. He was born as a shepherd, and, and God found him and, and plucked him from the fields and then made him a king through a lot of crazy circumstances. Um, but he uses this analogy of what David would be very, very familiar with, a subject to David that he's familiar with, which is sheep, right? As a shepherd, your main job is to herd and care for sheep, to fend off different um, predators that might come after the sheep. And David knows very intimately the type of bond that this protective relationship would, would be built with a sheep. And he knows that bond amongst a herd of sheep, so how much more strong must that bond have been for just a single sheep? The one sheep that this man had that was like a daughter to him that he raised um, from, from uh, birth and, and fed and took care of. And David is immediately enraged to find that someone who had so much would take from someone who in comparison had so little. As David shares his judgment for whomever this man is, Nathan then communicates to David that he is the man in the story. Now imagine David was not um, an idiot, right? He, he was actually pretty intelligent from what we know. And imagine how much rationalization, imagine how much ignorance that he had to have of what he had done to listen to the story that is so closely related to exactly what he had done and have no idea that the story was about him. It wasn't like he was thinking, oh, I need to tiptoe into whatever I say about this because I, I might be, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I might be telling on myself, so to speak, right? I might be indicting myself if I come in with a harsh judgment because this is like what I did. No, no, he had no idea that this was like what he did until Nathan said, actually, David, that's you in the story, man. Is that this moment for the first time that David truly and fully recognizes his sin for what it is. No longer able to rationalize or ignore it because Nathan had so plainly and powerfully 
confronted him with it. That was right on cue. The other day, uh, Sawyer was playing Mario. And uh, he was on uh, this really, really difficult level. And he got almost to the end. And he lost his last life and got the dreaded game over sign. Sad. His upbeat and excited demeanor changed immediately. He dropped his shoulders. He shrugged a little bit. And he looked to the ground. And he just casually said, dang. Only he didn't say dang. He actually used a different word. A uh, much stronger word. And I will let you guys uh, imagine what that might have been. I asked him, where did you learn that word? I said, what did you say? And he said, dang. He said it again. I said, where did you learn that? And without missing a beat, he said, you know, YouTube. And so, well, we uh, actually pay a lot closer attention to the YouTube videos that are being watched now. But I asked him how he felt when Hunter used the word stupid. Because obviously at this point, Sawyer doesn't realize that he's using such a strong word. And he said that it made him feel sad when Hunter uses the word stupid, because that's a bad word. It's mean, and you shouldn't use that word. And so then I told him, hey, the word that you just used is actually a lot stronger word than stupid, and a lot of people consider it a bad word. And he was mortified. He was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I will never say that again, ever. And uh, needless to say, he, uh, he doesn't watch as much YouTube, and he has not said it since, so that's good. Um, but in this moment, Sawyer was not aware of his mistake, right? He was kind of just gleefully saying this word, and then I confronted him about somebody else using a strong word, and he had no idea what was going on, right? It's very much like David uh, in this scenario until I finally said, hey, that's actually wrong what you did. And he immediately, immediately had remorse and immediately said, look, I'm not going to do that again. I didn't mean to. I'm sorry. And it's because he finally recognized his sin. And so if we're going to actually confess to God in the way that we're called to confess, the first thing that we have to do is recognize our sin. In the same way that David was kind of just going throughout life and he didn't have this full recognition, he couldn't fully confess in the way that he needed to to move on until he recognized, hey, what I did was wrong. It took Nathan pointing this out. Sometimes it takes people in our lives pointing things out. Like, hey, bro, you shouldn't say that word when you get a game over. It's not a good one. Um, and so when God puts these people in our lives, we should pay attention and we should know that they are there to help us recognize our sin, especially if this is a brother or sister in Christ. A lot of times when people have uh, words of wisdom for us, sometimes we can take you know, great offense to that and we can have a completely opposite reaction. But we should recognize that God allows these things to happen so that we can recognize our sin. The next part of scripture that we'll be in is actually in Psalm chapter 51. In verse 1. And so we, we just learned about this, this confrontation, right? Nathan comes to David and he says, hey, what you did was not right. And David finally recognizes that what he did was sinful. And that what he did needed to be confessed. He couldn't ignore it any longer. And so David, uh, he does a, a few things. But one of the things he does in response to this is he, he has this prayer. And this is actually, it's one of my favorite, if not my favorite, prayers in all of Scripture. It's very powerful. It starts off in verse 1 like this. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So up to this point through verse 5, we see David having a lot of recognition of sin. And he's saying, look, it's not just this time. My sin has surrounded me since birth, right? He says, according to your steadfast love and your mercy, according to how good you are, please save me from how bad I am. Please bring me back into a right relationship with you because I know that that is where I want to be. So David realizes not only does he recognize his sin, he realizes that in order to confess, he needs to admit his sin. So if we want to confess, we have to admit our sin. It's not enough just to recognize, yeah, you're right, God, I, you know, I should have done that. Um, it's not enough. What God calls for us to do is to bring this admission to him and say, not only did I mess up here, I messed up because I'm actually broken and I have been broken since birth. And it's only because of you that I make good choices. And it's only because of you that I can be saved from my bad choices. And you are the only one who can reconcile me back into your goodness. Admitting our mistake can be difficult because often we are afraid of the punishment. We're afraid of the punishment. But when we admit our mistake to God, he can start to work through that mistake. God knows our actions, whether we admit them or not. And he's prepared to punish or allow punishment in whatever way that is needed for us to grow and for his will to be done. So in other words, God is God. Whether we come and admit our sin or not, God's will is going to be done. And he already knows whether we're going to admit our sin. He knows sins we're going to commit in the future, ones we've committed in the past. All these things are working together for our good and for his good and for his will to be done. So our admission does not necessarily affect any of this. But reconciliation, God's desire for us to be made right with him, can only happen when we admit and confess our sin. In other words, our confession, our admission of this sin, it doesn't change God's overall plan for humanity. What it changes is our relationship with God, how we are allowed to relate with him. And he comes in and he says, I know you did that. Thank you for telling me. Let me take that from you so that you can be reconciled and be made right with me. You see, outside of a relationship with God, we might actually escape punishment by not admitting our wrongdoings. People aren't perfect. Judges aren't perfect. Justice system, definitely not perfect. And so sometimes we may get away with things by not sharing all the information. If the kids do something they're not supposed to do, I'm sure there have been times where I haven't caught them doing something wrong and they didn't tell me and I'll, and I'll never know. And maybe they escaped some form of punishment. But you see, in a relationship with God, by not admitting our wrongdoings, the only thing we're, we're escaping is his ability to reconcile us back to him and continue his good work in our lives. We're not escaping punishment. David says it, right? He says, have mercy on me. And he says, wash me thoroughly because I know my transgressions and what? My sin is ever before me. It's all around us. 
the punishment for mistakes of humanity, the punishment for our individual mistakes, we're dealing with those on a daily basis, whether we confess our sins to God or not. So when we choose to withhold confession from God, we're not saving ourselves. We're not making sure that we get to escape punishment because that's going to happen. We're living in a broken world. We will have to deal with brokenness regardless. What we're doing is we're keeping ourselves from being reconciled to God. We often treat our relationship with God as if we're in control of the knowledge. Right? It's like, well, I'll let God in on that when I'm ready. Because I'm not ready to do that yet. I still feel bad about it. Let me go and, and figure out a few things where I can make it look not quite as bad. Then I'll go tell God about it. But God has access to both the entirety of knowledge of every situation that's ever happened, is currently happened, happening, and ever will happen, and the solutions to the issues within those situations. So not only he already knows all of these things, but he also has the solutions to the things that we're going through. And he's given us the key to unlocking the solutions to pain, frustration, struggles, to our brokenness. He's just waiting for us to use the key to open the door and access his goodness. You see, that door is shut. Until we bring confession, until we turn things over to God, then the door opens. But we can only do that if we understand that punishment is not on the other side of the door. Again, David says, my sin is ever before me. The consequences of our broken actions in a broken world are all around us. They're on this side of the door with us. What's behind the door that we access through confession is not more brokenness. It's forgiveness and restoration that only God can give through confession. So we have to recognize our sin. We have to admit our sin. And then we go into further this prayer that David has, starting in verse 6. It says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. In verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me. From blood guiltiness, O oh God, O oh God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Verse 18. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings and bulls will be offered on your altar. You see, we recognize our sin. We admit our sin. And then we trust in God's ability to reconcile us to him. I don't know about you, but when I start recognizing my sin and I start admitting it and confessing it, there's parts of my heart that start to doubt. Like, 
What can God do with this? I thought I was bringing so much to the table, but when I step back and, and I stop ignoring and I stop rationalizing and I realize just how small I am. We talked about that last week in adoration, how big God is and how small we are. And I realize how good God is and I realize how not good I am. And I start to think, what can God do with me? But you see, David, at the height of sin, at the height of taking another man's wife and sending him out to be murdered, still believed in God. He was a man after God's own heart. He still understood that God had the power to reconcile him back to a right relationship with himself. He doesn't ask. He doesn't say, God, don't punish, don't punish me. He doesn't say, God, let not your will be done. He says, God, just let me be with you again, please. Whatever that takes. Restore in me a clean heart so that I understand what it's like to live for you. Because then everything that I do will make sense again. Everything that I do will matter again. We confess our sins so that we can be made right with God. We confess our sins so that we don't have to feel separation from God, from his goodness, from the solution to our suffering. We confess our sins to God so that sin doesn't have to separate us. We have to understand that confession is the key to the door that opens up the presence of God. All we have to do to unlock that door and enter fully into God's forgiveness, mercy, and grace is to recognize our sin, admit our sin, and trust in God's reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to take this time this morning and just confess to you that I am so guilty of trying to do things on my own so often. Lord, I'm, I'm quick to look to you for vision and then quick to just take off running and, and leave you in the dust. And God, I find myself sometimes a month, two months, three months, a year later, recognizing that I'm not carrying you with me in the decisions that I'm making. That I get so excited about a vision that you've given me that I forget to continually come back to you for the directions of how to make it to that vision. God, I pray that you would give my heart peace, Lord, that you would give me patience, that you would give me joy in the process of following you, and that when you give me a vision for something, God, I wouldn't take off without you, Lord. I would walk hand in hand with you, side by side, and I would look to you for direction in every decision. God, that I would trust in your timing and I would try to force things. God, I pray that you would bless that faithfulness. God, you can do more in one second than I can do in a thousand lifetimes. I pray that I would just remember that. God, I pray if there's other things here that we need to confess. God, I don't know, but I imagine there's probably no one here that needs to confess to killing a man and stealing someone's wife. But God, there are other things in our life that keep us from a right relationship with you. And God, sometimes those things may not even be terrible things in the eyes of the world, but they're things that have just slowly but surely burrowed their way into our lives and keep us 
from following you fully. God, I pray that no one here would have that in their life. God, I pray that if they have it in their life, that they would use this time right now to confess that to you, to give that to you. And God, you would work incredible miracles through that specific part of their life that they've been keeping from you. God, that you would work miracles through our church because we are so faithful to recognize and to admit our sin, God, and to trust in the fact that you love us and that you will reconcile us back to you. God, thank you for having that desire. Thank you for being who you are. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace and your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.